Welcome to How We Raised It, the extraordinary stories of mega gifts and multi-million dollar philanthropic campaigns from the Australian arts leaders who delivered them. I'm your host, Melissa Smith, and this series is commissioned by Creative Partnerships Australia and Noble Ambition. On today's episode, we have Dr. Marie-Louise Ayres, Director General of the National Library of Australia, who's been in the role since 2017. She's also Chair of the National and State Libraries of Australia, an Honorary Fellow of the Australian Academy of the Humanities. Prior to this, she held various roles at the National Library of Australia since 2002. Committed to making the National Library's most impactful and unique cultural heritage truly accessible to all Australians, this is a humble story of extraordinary passion to unlock the treasured voices of its collections through digitisation. This story has yet to have its final chapter written. Ryan Stokes, Dame Nellie Melba and Patrick White's Reading Glasses. This is the story of the National Library of Australia's Treasured Voices campaign ambitions for 30 million. Mari Louise, thank you so much for joining us on How We Raised It. Thank you, Melissa. It's fantastic to be here. You have dedicated your career to enabling access to information and knowledge. And with the National Library of Australia for almost 20 years and Director General since 2017. Library and books have no doubt been such an important part of your life. Can you tell me one of your earliest memories of joining a library or going to a library when you were a child, when you were in Canberra? Oh, yes. I loved the school library when I was in primary school. And I certainly remember the high school library where I was at was a place of refuge when I wasn't always fitting in with other kids at school. But I also have very fond memories of the public library at the curtain shops in Canberra. But I was never one of those kids who thought, I want to work in a library when I grow up. It never crossed my mind. And falling into libraries later was very much an accident. But books have been a huge part of my life since as long as I can remember. Oh, that's lovely. Mine too, as we have spoken at length about them over the years. You completed your PhD in Australian Literature and Australian National University and eventually joined the National Library in 2002. Now, for those of our listeners who haven't had the pleasure of going to the National Library, it is one of my favourite buildings in all of Canberra. Can you tell me that day when you first entered the library, what were you feeling when you entered that extraordinary building? Well, I had mixed feelings. One was how fortunate I was because I'd done quite a lot of research at the National Library. Uh, so I knew what the collections were like. And I had worked with colleagues at the National Library in my previous career in a university library. But I also felt a little bit like a fraud because I'm not actually a librarian, never have been, still am not. And I had this feeling that the National Library was only for librarians, which it wasn't. The other thing, though, I remember very clearly is that when I arrived in my new office, which had very funky furniture, there was a bouquet of flowers and a beautiful little note from the woman who became my boss and then my colleague and is now my friend, Margie Byrne, offering me a really warm welcome to the National Library. And I actually still have the little card in my box of work treasures. So it was a combination of feeling, wow, have I actually made it here? And I've been really welcomed into this place. And it was a great feeling, actually. 
That is lovely. Now, you have immersed yourself in the collections of the National Libraries for years. You know them incredibly well. Can you share one item or one collection that when you first found it, it took your breath away? That is very simple for me. It's actually the papers of Patrick White. I had visited his agent, Barbara Mobbs, at her home to discuss actually another smaller collection. I realise now she was really checking me out and she must have liked either the cut of my jib or I ascribe this really to the really excellent stockings that I was wearing on the day that she liked. (laughs) And a couple of weeks later, I got an email from Barbara saying that had a heading, you may be interested in this. And in it, she described the papers of Patrick White, which she had been holding unknown to anybody since his death. They were believed to have been lost, to have been burnt. And I remember my heart just stopped. And it really, it was the most amazing moment in my career. We then had a very secret squirrel process of getting the archive to Canberra, unpacking it, having it valued. I still remember when I got to the very last box that I was unpacking and there was Patrick's glasses in the glasses case, still smeared the way that your glasses are and I just burst into tears. So I have no doubt that that was the most important acquisition of my career. I still feel so fortunate that I was the one in the chair when it finally came to us because others before me had been searching and chasing for years. And that's the way this business goes. You're part of a long chain of people developing collections and sometimes you just get lucky and you're the one that's there when it comes into the library. So no doubt about my favourite, that's it. What a treasure trove. In 2017, you were appointed then the Director General of the National Library. Such an extraordinary role. Your chair at the time was Ryan Stokes. What were your first priorities as you entered this new leadership role? Well, of course, I'd been at the library for a long time and I'd been a member of the leadership team for five years before I was appointed Director General. I was really clear in my priorities and they remain my priorities now, which is to make sure that these extraordinary collections that have been developed over generations and decades by the National Library using taxpayer money should be more accessible to the Australian people. So 98% of Australians live more than three hours drive from the National Library. And that has been a real driver through my career to, to bridge that gap. People coming to our building love it and so do I. They tell us that they do better thinking when they're working in the library, that it it, it invites them to think larger and more expansively. I wanted to create that opportunity for people in the online world for those who couldn't join us in the library. So I was very clear about my priorities. They were to continue building great collections to be part of that long chain of stewards of collections. They were to make them accessible and they were to really keep the foot down on our digital ambitions, exemplified through Trove, which I had previously led, which was about getting those collections to every corner of the country. So they were really my drivers at the time. It was it was about getting collections beyond the building it out into the community. Of which philanthropy would then play an important role in helping the library do this. My question is, and our focus on how we raised it, is the Treasured Voices campaign. Now, for our listeners, we first met at the end of 2017 when I had the wonderful opportunity of getting to know you and the library and your colleagues and some of your philanthropic ambitions. Can you tell us a little bit about this campaign to raise $30 million over 10 years 
to digitize the most important and unique items of the library's collection. Can you first of all tell me why is it called Treasured Voices? Yes, it speaks to two things about the library. One is it does hark back to our Treasures Gallery. In an earlier part of the library's life, there was a, I guess, a transactional philanthropic campaign that was aimed for something quite traditional to raise funds to build a Treasures Gallery so that really fantastic parts of the library's collection could be exhibited. And that still plays an important role today. So I guess that idea of the library holding treasures has had long-term resonance. But the other part is voices. Our collection is full of the voices of Australians past and present. And when I say voices, I can mean literally voices. We have 55,000 hours of oral history collections from Australians of every walk of life and from every part of the country. But we all have so have their voices in the form of the newspapers that we have digitised, as well as things like our manuscripts collections, where you really do have people writing to each other, you know, voices on paper. So it was this sense of something very intimate and personal about what was in our collections and that they really deserve to be treasured and, of course, to be shared. So that's where the idea for the name came through. And for me, it has enormous resonance. People really understand what we mean when we talk about our treasures and the voices in our collection. I think when we first began talking about this idea and digitizing and access is one thing, but when you gave it this story and this characterization of treasured voices, it made it seem to come alive. And you could just hear all these voices just waiting to be heard. I think that's right. And you can have a great idea. But one of the things I've really learned about philanthropy is that you need to convert your great idea into a storyline that the community can immediately grasp. And for us, treasured voices is that storyline. Now, another thing about this particular campaign, unlike some of our other guests, is that this campaign, you were mid-campaign. Its aspiration is to raise $30 million over 10 years, and it was launched in 2018. We'll get into the beginning stages a little bit more, but I think what's really important for our listeners to hear is what it's actually like when you're in it, in the thick of it as you are right now, the real slog, the highs, the lows, the knockbacks, the resilience building therein. I want to kind of jump back to the very beginning You perhaps had not had significant experience in philanthropy and fundraising prior to your role as Director General. You're doing amazing things in the collection elsewhere and with Trove. So how did you equip yourself to lead one of the most ambitious philanthropic campaigns for libraries in Australia? I would say I had zero philanthropy experience (laughs) before we embarked on this campaign. But looking back, I had something that was really important in My previous roles, particularly as the person responsible for Trove, and before that as the Senior Curator of Pictures and Manuscripts, I'd had a lot of experience in communicating to stakeholder groups about the value of what we were doing. I had a lot of experience with talking with other organisations about the value of digitising collections and making them available through this single place called Trove. And Looking back, I think I'd actually honed some of the skills in terms of creating a simple story. I think the other thing that really equipped me here is that I just didn't have any doubt that what we were setting out to do, raising funding for digitisation, was tapping straight into our unique value proposition. Lots of organisations need a new building or might build a gallery. We'd done one of those. 
but we are the only organisation that is working with 900 partners across the country and have this amazing website which has 30 million visitors a year and really high brand recognition in the community. So for me, the thing that helped to equip me was absolute belief in the value of what we were doing, the value of getting those collections out and absolute belief that we could deliver on what we were promising. Now, having said that, there was quite a lot that I had to learn. I really had to hone all of that in the philanthropic space. Working with you, Melissa, really helped with that, both in terms of our our strategy, but also in terms of retrofitting your existing skill set to a new task. And probably the biggest issue for me was the dawning realisation that something that wasn't even on my job description when I came in was going to take 20% of my time. I think so. It's been a pleasure to help build some of the insights into philanthropy and, and motivations of donors, but then just see how extraordinary you are sharing your passion for the library and its collections, which you do so beautifully. Now, tell me, why is this campaign so necessary? Trove is there. It's an extraordinary resource. There's so much extraordinary aspects of the collection, yet so few are digitized. Tell me why this imp- campaign is important. Well, I would say that the library has been digitising its collection now for over 20 years and we still have only 7% of the collection digitised. Now, for your listeners, that might sound surprising, but when I say that if you were to lay our shelving out end to end, it would reach from here in Canberra almost to where you are in Sydney, Melissa. So, you know, it's a bit short of 300 kilometres. The collection is vast. That doesn't mean all of it should be digitised, but certainly a much higher proportion should be digitised and available to the community. Until quite recently, we had never received any additional government funding to digitise our collections. And then we came to a bit of a crunch point, actually, in 2015. We had been managing ongoing shaving of our budget year on year, as is the case with all Commonwealth agencies. We were not singled out, but we had a bigger budget cut at the end of 2015. And one of the really dreadful decisions that we had to make was to totally cease any library-funded digitization. One of the reasons that we did that was because we knew that we could restart digitization relatively straightforwardly if funding became available in a way that you you can't turn off bits of your collecting and then turn it on again in, in two years. So the decision was made with the the right things in mind, but was nevertheless a very difficult uh, decision. We were fortunate then to receive some further funding from government about a year later that helped us to get on again. And then we really went to government and said, look, we actually think it's quite reasonable to ask the community and particularly those who have means to support the funding of digitising this collection. It doesn't have to be just about government, but we really need you to come on board and to show faith in us and provide us with some matching funding or some seed funding. And that's actually what the government did. So the current $10 million over four years that we have from government is the first time we'd ever had any additional funding. So it really does come down to funding. Running an organisation like the library takes a lot every single year. The community is becoming bigger and more diverse. That means we have more work to do in terms of our collecting and our outreach. There simply isn't enough money in the in the pot to do everything that we would like to do. 
And as it turned out, government, I think, went further than we had suggested. We were actually suggesting a matching funding arrangement and they put $10 million on the table first up. And that has been tremendously helpful for us in terms of persuading those who might really want to give that government's got skin in the game too. Government's always had skin in the game. I think that $10 million commitment that the government made, I believe in 2019 or so, was incredibly important and reflects a lot of the public-private partnership models that are out there in the Australian philanthropy market right now, which is a really great example. I want to pull back a bit. That moment when Treasured Voices was signed off at the council and the commitment was made by the board to a $30 million campaign, Brian Stokes is still chair. Can you tell me how you felt as you left that boardroom knowing that you had a very big philanthropic goal now set for you? Slightly daunted, but I also felt that we'd got a fair hearing from our board in that we we also had to take something away from the picture. We had previously been seeking corporate funding to support international exhibitions. And once we decided that our philanthropic strategy was going to be about what we could uniquely do, digitising the most important parts of our collection, making that decision meant we also said we will no longer be doing international exhibitions because we can't support them without external funding. So part of me was feeling that we had a very clear cut mandate from our board and not an expectation that we were going to go on doing what we had been doing plus this new work. So one of the things that we needed to do in committing to the strategy was to establish a new team for philanthropy. That ended up being part of a much larger reorganisation of the library. And of course, setting up a new team for philanthropy meant taking resources away from other parts of the library. So there were swings and roundabouts, but I was quite sure that we were doing the right thing. And I was really quite sure from the beginning that we'd be able to achieve the aim as well. If it had seemed like an impossible task, that would have been just depressing instead of uh, (laughs) exhilarating and a challenge. And I like challenges. I know you do. And we will get to some of the success stories in a moment. I want to know a little bit more about the role of the board. Now, your chair, Ryan Stokes, was important in supporting philanthropy up to that point. And then he finished up his term as chair of the National Library to take on the chair at the National Gallery of Australia. What did that mean for philanthropy at the library at that point in time? Well, Ryan had been really the instigator of this. Look, we had a really excellent uh, chair-CEO relationship and he had certainly been really pressing me on this to say, I think we can do more. He believed so much in what we could do digitally. He'd seen that during his time as chair. So it was difficult, frankly, for just as we were getting going, for him to move to another organisation. I guess all of that passion and impetus and contacts and capability that Ryan had left the library. So that was daunting. We then, of course, had new appointments to the Library Council, uh, a new chair, Dr Brett Mason, former senator, who had not previously been involved in philanthropy at all, but was willing to learn. And we also had some other board members who had some experience in the space. So I would say across the board, the level of philanthropic capability in terms of a large campaign or large asks was not great as it was not great for me. So that's meant that we've had to learn together, but we do have a board that's 
fully engaged with the idea and willing to work on it. But there's been a fair bit of learning for everybody. The big learnings that I've had too, now that we've got a professional philanthropy team in, headed up by uh, Dr. Connor McCarthy. And I've learned a lot from him about the business of raising philanthropic funding, about the operationalising of it that was completely opaque to me before. So I think for council as well, they have a much better sense of what is required to actually get there, that there's a big gap between the idea and the money coming through the door. Absolutely. And I think from the, the time that I've seen and, and, and worked with you and your board is, is this hunger to learn and this deep commitment to, to the vision of Treasured Voices. I it's- think that's right. So it takes a little while for people to understand the scale of what we're doing here. And then once they do, they're on full bottle to try and support it. Now, a great gift that Ryan Stokes made on behalf of himself and his family was a million-dollar donation to the National Library for fellowships. Can you tell me a little bit about what this gift at that time meant to the library? Firstly, it was just a wonderful gift. It was the first gift, and I'm sure that everybody who's been in this game would say the first million's the hardest to get. So he (laughs) made it relatively easy for us to have that first million. But the other thing was that Ryan and... Claire and the Stokes family were very intentional in saying, right, here's our million dollars to support fellowships because it meant that we could focus our attention almost entirely on this new idea of encouraging philanthropists to part with their own money to make collections more accessible to the community. We've just selected next year's fellows and I've had the pleasure again of writing to Ryan and Claire to tell them about the amazingly diverse scholarship that will be enabled as a result of their gift. And I think that this has been a theme for us all the way through is to make sure that your story is really clear and simple. And he made it easier for us by taking that one pretty much out of the equation. Absolutely. And the confidence that propels you forward too. In 2019, Jane Hemstridge, former deputy chair of the library, made a similar commitment of a million dollars. Can you tell me a little bit more about that gift? Yes, I'd love to tell you that story. I'd known Jane for quite a long time and we got on tremendously well. She'd been a marvellous deputy chair and long-term contributor to the library and left us after nine years as she had to. So I went down to visit Jane in Melbourne to have lunch with her and it was certainly very much that I wanted to just catch up with her, but I knew that I was going to be asking her for a gift. So we are having lunch in Richmond in this gorgeous little restaurant. I was on a banquet with my back to the glass window. So the glass window is right behind me. Jane is really quite mischievous. So when I started to kind of introduce the idea that perhaps she might like to assist us, Well, she looked at me cheekily and said, yes. She said, I had been thinking about this. And she said, and um, I'd like to give the library a million dollars. And I nearly fell through the plate glass window because that was not what I was expecting. So I still remember it as being (laughs) being absolutely shocked. I know that she knew that I was going to be shocked and she totally loved that moment (laughs) of seeing me perhaps willing to ask for what I thought was a substantial sum, but not anywhere like what she actually gave us. So again, I'd have to say, in terms of the beginning of my philanthropic career, we had two fairly easy wins. But the other thing about that, Melissa, is that part of that conversation was me really exploring 
for the first time in some depth what her interests were, what she'd really be interested in. And it turned out that she had been doing quite a lot of family history and she was really interested in her own forebears in Victoria and their role in country Victoria. And she was interested in some other forebears of hers who'd been quite intrepid in terms of living in Australia in the 19th century and then taking off to take up business ventures in what's now Sri Lanka. I went back and did some thinking about this. Um, This is the advantage of knowing the collections, actually. Did some thinking, talked to our collections folks, asked Jane to come up again to look at some ideas we had. And one of those was to digitise Australia's collection of almanacs. Now, most people would hardly know what an almanac is now, but think of it as the Google before there was Google. This was the, the the published volumes that a person living in Victoria in the 19th and earliest 20th century would purchase, and it would have everything from prices of the staples they were going to need to planting calendars to you know religious calendars to who the local mayors were. They really were an important information source. And we brought some of these out and. Quite accidentally, one of them she picked up and she started looking at it. It was a kind of a compendium of country Victoria. And she went to a particular town and she said, oh, there he is. There's my great-grandfather. He was the mayor of that town. Now, I could not have orchestrated that moment, but I knew and she knew that that was it. So that's one of the things that Jane's gift is funding. And we're well underway now with digitising every Australian almanac ever published. So that gives a kind of complete set, which is really important. And for the other interest of hers, which is intrepid Australians going overseas, my first choice was the papers of a woman called Sarah Chinnery, who had spent a lot of time with her husband in very remote parts of Papua New Guinea in the 1920s and 1930s. So that really taught me that It's very important, even if you've got a wonderful person like Jane willing to give you money, to really explore what their personal interests are and what they're going to feel really happy that their money is going to bring to others. And in both cases, I think we've really hit the mark with with Jane. I think it's an extraordinary demonstration of the power of relationship building and and finding the alignment between what your priorities are in terms of digitizing the collection, and that is what will resonate with the donor as well. I want to take us to April 2021 when another million-dollar gift was announced. And this one is in a very different area of the collection, performing arts. This gift was from Susan and Isaac Wakel Foundation to digitise parts of the National Library's performing arts collection. Tell me a little bit more. Very different story. For Ryan and Jane, of course, I knew them well. They knew our collections well, and they'd been on our board long enough to know that when we said we'd deliver something, we would. So very high level of understanding and trust. It was quite different with the Wackel gift that we'd had no previous contact at all with Mr. Wackel, his late wife, Susan. Uh, we'd had no contact with her at all, although they were represented in our collection in various ways. The key there was that a member of our board, Julian Lisa MP, did know them really quite well. And although Mr. Wakel is maybe considered reclusive, he's very elderly and doesn't see many people, he certainly knew and trusted Julian. 
and Julian knew and trusted us. So in a sense, there's a kind of a transfer of trust there from a board member who could speak with great authority about our collections and what we could do, who was the intermediary. So we put together a proposal for digitising our performing arts collections, which are amazing and very, very rich and could use lots and lots of gifts to make them all come to life. And actually, initially, Mr. Wakehall said, not sure that this is for me. And Julian let me know this. And then the very next day, actually, there was a change of heart. And we then really initiated that conversation and started to delve into which parts of the collection would be really of most value to Mr. Wakel. But again, I would say that the proposal we put to him that was initially unsuccessful and then successful the next day (laughs) had been very carefully put together. We understood what marvellous patrons of the performing arts that the Wakels were. We understood their great interest in fashion and costume. We knew that they were represented in our collection. And so we did put together, I think, a very professional and personalised proposal for Mr. Wakel that spoke directly to him. And as it turned out, again, sometimes you have serendipitous things happen. So some of the items that we had put in to pique his interest really resonated with him because they were people that he knew. So we really went from a cold relationship with the library to an articulated relationship through a board member, to a proposal, to a no, to a yes, to a further (laughs) explore. And then actually, we were going to start work on this, this financial year in July. And in fact, he got so enthused, he said, can we start earlier? And we did. We started earlier, which meant by the end of the financial year, we'd already been able to do some beautiful collections related to Dame Nellie Melba and were able to show them to him, which is fantastic. So I think the same principles apply, trying to understand what the individual's real interests are. It just shows how extraordinary the library's collection is and its great reaches that it has. Can you tell me a little bit, some of the other people we've interviewed for this podcast series have focused on capital campaigns. And this is why I was so keen for you to share your insights with Treasured Voices, because it is not bricks and mortar. It is digitizing and bringing to life the, the collection for everybody around the world in Australia. Is capital more easy, do you think? I'm sure capital is easier because it's tangible. People can see it. They can walk through it. They can take their friends or the family through the new room or the new building and say, we helped to build this and have that sense of that continuing in a very, very tangible way for a long time. So I think it is an easier proposition. You and I have discussed this before too, that I think it's a much easier proposition if you're not in Canberra. Mm. Um, There are special issues, I think, for Canberra institutions where we have fewer high net worth individuals. This is not where they congregate. They congregate in Sydney and Melbourne primarily. And also where there's that sense, I suppose, that it's a government town and shouldn't government just fund everything. So I think those two things individually make the job harder. But when you put them together, actually, that's the story that we're telling, that we're not raising money for a building in Canberra that only a few people can visit. We are actually raising money. We are asking you to help us to get these magnificent collections contained in this strict classical building by the lake of uh, uh, Billy Griffin and get those out to the community. So 
It's quite different. We don't know of any other campaign quite like this. And there's an element of risk there, but there's also an element of opportunity. If we're front runners in this space, then I think we've got an opportunity to really kind of put our footprint down and to appeal to people who want something a bit different or who've already funded a building somewhere. As is the case, of course, with the Wakil Foundation. I mean, they had funded a building, they'd funded marvellous scholarships in the medical arena. They'd done that. This, I think, was a very new proposition for them. So I think it's more difficult. I also think there's more opportunity. And the more success we have, I think that that just kind of builds that story of success and, and lets people say, oh, yeah, okay, right, I get that. I understand what you're on about now. I think you're right. The challenge is very exciting. Tell me, for a capital campaign, it's easier in some senses. It's tangibly, it's built here is the impact of your gift. How do you demonstrate the impact of somebody's gift to the Treasured Voices campaign? I guess I'd start from the from the inside out, Melissa. Mm. So there are still some very traditional things that you ha- that you can do to illustrate that impact and to recognise and celebrate it. So inside the building, for example, we have now built a Treasured Voices wall in our foyer that really conveys that there are a lot of people helping us with this and that has videos showing some of our most important projects. And we have that recognition in the physical building, even though we're asking for something that's about the digital realm. So I don't think you can overlook that, nor all of the ways that one traditionally recognises donors. But in terms of conveying the impact to donors, that really needs to be through storytelling. Part of it is is the numbers game in just kind of continuing to note that Trove, which is where we deliver this, does have 30 million visits a year. That constitutes almost 90% of all visits to all national cultural institution websites. So it's humongous. It's really where people go to look at this content. So that's one of the things that we can say. We also can say quite rightly that use of this digitised content is directly proportional to geographic distribution. So somebody living in the remote town of Fitzroy Crossing is statistically as likely to benefit from this content as somebody living in Melbourne. So then they're the macro stories. Then there's the micro stories. And you need to gather these together over a period of time. So in relation to uh, Ryan's gift for fellowships, always telling the story of what that scholarship enabled. And we do the same certainly with the the performing arts that we're doing at the moment to say we will always hear from people who use those collections to generate ideas for a new production. That happens all the time. So members of the public who use our digital content are amazingly generous in telling us what they use it for. And for us, it's a matter of capturing the most important of those micro stories of individuals benefiting and making sure that we are conveying those back through to the donors. I think it probably depends a little on the project too. The big project that we're working on at the moment is on women leaders. And this is partly about the zeitgeist. We had our regular tax time appeal this year to help us to digitise some important papers of earlier women leaders and had our biggest ever response. So we know that actually this is something that particularly women really care about. I think the stories there will be Are they the macro stories of empowering young women to take on leadership positions by knowing and remembering the stories of the women who went before them? 
And, you know, as I said, there's a zeitgeist here. We we know that. We've seen the ABC program is represented. So I think with each of these sets of content, it's a little bit different, actually. The other thing with all collections, and this is the same with digitised collections, is that you have to see them as patient capital. There's a very famous dictum of librarianship, and I'm going to update it so it's not gender specific, and and it goes, uh, every book its reader, and every reader his or her book. That can take a long time to come about. So a collection that you might have acquired 30 years ago and hasn't been used once, all of a sudden will be in demand because the community's changed because different questions are being asked. And it's the same with the digital collections. Just because you digitise and put it out there doesn't mean it's all going to be used immediately, but it will be over five years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. So that's part of the story as well, that our digital collections are as enduring as a capital building because we look after them well. One might argue even more so with far greater impact nationally. Can I ask you the question, I've heard others describe that literature, libraries, writing is perhaps the poorer cousin of arts philanthropy compared to the visual arts, perhaps. Do you think this is the case? And how do you mount a compelling case for for philanthropy to invest in your area? I think you're right that it is the poor cousin, but not just for visual arts, I think for the very high-end performing arts too. So I think rather than splitting by literature and visual arts, I think I would probably say really high art and stuff that's going to be useful for a very large number of people. And we're in the business of not supporting, I love opera and ballet, don't get me wrong, but you know they are art forms that by their, their, their cost of production, really the people who can enjoy them most in the way that they should be performed tend to be the very well off. What we are really doing is bringing everyday resources, newspapers, pictures, uh, ephemera, almanacs, a whole lot of everyday stuff of life to life through our digital endeavours because in those is just the myriad of tiny little details that Australians need to understand their own story or their community story or where they fit in Australia's story, as well as some of those higher art things like our performing arts collections that really are about recognising that we've always had excellence this space and hoping that that will generate more ideas to excellence. So it is more of a a mixed bag. I do think it's harder. I also think just there's a really serious issue with with libraries. People expect libraries to be run by middle-aged women like me um, wearing a cardigan and everybody who works in a library has to have a cardigan because there's hot spots and cold spots. They tend (laughs) to think of us as being kind of a bit um, grandmotherly, a bit dusty. You know, every time I hear media reports about going into the, you know, the dusty archives, and first I think no dust in our archives, and second <laughs> I think you just don't understand the extent of the digital and electronic excellence that has existed in the library world for decades, much longer than any other parts of the glam sector. So, Sometimes you're kind of 
confirming people's understandings that you're approachable, that your library is there for everybody, but you're also having to elevate it a little bit so that they don't just think, yes, you're my local public library. It's it's an odd thing that more Australians are members of and visit public libraries and all of the other arts and cultural forms put together, and yet libraries are always left off the list. Well, we're going to try and change that. I think so. (laughs) A final question for you before we invite our listeners to go onto Trove just to see the extraordinary collection that is the National Library. What advice would you give to other arts leaders in securing mega gifts and multi-million dollar campaigns into the future? I'd say be brave, but you can only be brave if you believe you've got something of immense value that a proposition that you can sell and that you can deliver on. So for me, the courage that I've needed to pursue this has come from that deep place of knowing the value of what we have and our capability in terms of making it available. I would not describe myself as an overly cautious person, but for me, there was certainly a sense of needing to make sure we'd thought through the issues, that we understood the level of resourcing that we needed to put in to make this successful, that we reshaped the library to make it succeed. In other words, having the great idea was nothing. We needed to have quite a lot backing it up. And we're still learning there, actually. We're learning that we really underestimated the resources we would need elsewhere in the library to support the philanthropic vision. So that's learning along the way. So I think if you feel you've got a really compelling value proposition and that you can deliver, then you should be able to be brave and proceed. And if you're wobbly on either of those two things, I think I'd really be asking yourself, is there a different unique value proposition and what do I need to do in my organisation so that we can deliver on the vision? So a combination of courage, but also sufficient caution, especially for a national institution like ours, if we failed to deliver on what we said we'd deliver, that has huge implications for the reputation of the library, not just the philanthropic campaign. So it might depend a little bit which sphere you're actually in. But for me, it's value proposition plus capability equals, you know, winning proposition. Yes, I can get behind that. And therefore, I can make this a big part of my world. And I can reshape the library to understand that philanthropy is everybody's business in the library. And we're a long way further on that journey than we were in 2018. But I think we've still got a way to go there. That is a wonderful story. Thank you, Mari Louise, for your time today, your extraordinary leadership in the arts, fundraising and philanthropy. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity, Melissa. What a fabulous story and extraordinary leadership from Dr. Mari Louise Ayers. My three key learnings from this story are one, the role of leadership is critical in mega gifts and delivering campaigns. Now, leadership at the National Library was not only demonstrated in the $1 million gifts that were made by Ryan Stokes and Jane Hemstrich and how they contributed to the campaign targets, but they also reinforced the importance of philanthropy as a strategic priority for the organization at board level down. Now, this leadership and these gifts gave the organization confidence that this campaign was possible. And this builds momentum internally and externally with donors. Two, 
Board members are critical advocates and ambassadors, opening doors an organisation may otherwise not be able to access. The National Library did not know the Wakels, but through a board member, they were able to build a trusted, respectful relationship that resulted in a significant gift for the National Library. Three, philanthropy campaigns come with risks that they could not achieve their targets. In making these decisions, particularly for very large institutions, a very considered, measured assessment of risks versus opportunities was made before embarking upon the campaign for the National Library. Now, once that commitment was made at the board level, it has not wavered. And clearly, the Director General can't wait to get out to continue to engage the national donor community in unlocking treasured voices. My recommendations to apply in your own organization are, one, board giving is important in achieving targets, reinforcing organizational priorities, and building momentum. Two, board members can play critical roles in opening doors and building trust. Three, rigorously assess your campaign case, its associated risks and opportunities before you begin. Once the decision is made, enjoy all the possibilities and impact it will generate for your organization and the community it serves. Thank you for joining us on How We Raised It. Thanks for listening to How We Raised It. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leaving a review helps others find the podcast. For more resources and arts philanthropy know-how, head to creativepartnerships.gov.au For more on fundraising leadership, go to nobleambition.com.au.